of my house, there is a, a plaque that hangs that says house rules. Any of you have one of those plaques that says rules of the house? We forgive always. We love one another. We work hard, play harder. Any, anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you? Some of you have those. Yeah, we have one of those. Now, having that on the wall doesn't mean we don't yell at each other. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, or get frustrated with each other or get short with each other. But what it does do is it reminds us <clears throat> that we are family. And in every family, whether you have one of those plaques or not, we have rules, don't we? I remember when my children were growing up, you constantly hear one of us, mom or dad, say, we don't do that in this house. You guys know what I'm talking about? You all heard it when you were growing up. Don't don't pretend you didn't. Um, Or I would have to say to my children, don't speak to your mother that way. Mm -hmm. But why? Because, well, we have rules. There are certain things expected of us as children growing up in a house or certain things expected of our children growing up in our house that define us as a family. There are do's and there are don'ts. Usually there's a whole bunch of don'ts. But, but, but there are do's and there are don'ts. And that's what makes us a family. We know how to relate to one another because there's order and there are rules. What happens when we come together as a church? How do we relate to one another? Just looking out across this auditorium, there are people from every walk of life, from every background, from every uh, skill set, from every age group, every generational strata is, is found here in this auditorium, and yet we are a church. How do we relate to one another? That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are continuing in a series uh, called Church. Why bother? And we've been studying through the first letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his protege. Paul had left Timothy, his young disciple, in Ephesus to be the pastor of that church. It was a large church. And Timothy was young, and Paul was writing to Timothy to encourage him, to guide him, to instruct him on how to be a pastor, how to be an effective leader, how to lead and to shepherd the flock of God that had been entrusted to his care. Last week, in chapter 4, we learned that uh, Paul was very interested in making sure Timothy understood that his public and his private godliness was vitally important. That there were lots of places he could invest his time, but the thing that would, in, that would make the greatest impact both now and for eternity was his godliness, his Christ-likeness. And so Paul told Timothy, work out that godliness, because that godliness that's developed in you, that Christ-likeness that's developed in you has impact in your community, in your city, because the watching pagan world will see that and be impacted for the glory of God. But not only that, your godliness will give you credibility for the way in which you shepherd the flock of God. That was last week. Today we come to chapter 5 in the first 16 verses. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul now shifts back to more of a congregational view. In chapter 4, it was really all about Timothy and his shepherding and, and how he was to lead and to conduct himself. But now he tells Timothy there's a way in which he is supposed to relate to his church and how we are to relate to one another in the church. And Paul's summary point is this, that we as a church relate to each other as family. That we are a family. And that God has brought us 
from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ from every tribe tongue, nation, and people, and has brought us together into this place called the church to be family. So how do we relate to one another as family? I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul has three ways in which we relate to one another as family. Three things that he wants to share with us. And the first is that we treat one another with honor. We treat one another with honor. I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul is here giving us counsel, instruction on how we deal with one another as a family. We are the family of God. So how do we deal with one another? And so this is general instruction for you and me as we look across this room, how do we interact and relate with one another. But I have to pause and say that these instructions are ideal instructions. They're meant for the family of God, which is very different than the folks that are outside of the family of God. So first rule, this is about us in this room who are children of God, who've been brought together to be the family of God. But we live in a broken world. And I know that many of you, some of you, come from broken families come from dysfunctional families, distorted families that don't picture the family of God well. And so there's hurt and there's pain. And when you think about a family, especially the church, and when we think about the church being the family, you have a very different perspective of what a family should look like and how a family should act like. And yet the word of God is very countercultural, isn't it? It's very different than the culture, and no matter what brokenness we may come from, I humbly will pray that you and I will see the family of God through the lens of Scripture, that we are a family brought together by a Father who loves us and gave himself for us. Amen? That no matter how badly we may have been treated in our families, that the family of God loves you, and our Father loves us so much, he was willing to give us everything. So with that background... The Apostle Paul gives us some instruction. Now, the Apostle Paul, specifically writing to Timothy, knows that Timothy is young. He's in his early 30s. He's probably like C.T. How how many of you like C.T.? By the way, he's watching. That'd be a good place to clap, yeah? (laughs) C.T., we love you. We love... I love C.T. I knew him when he was at Lapeer. What a great man. What a great family. So excited to see what God will do with him and through him at this campus and in this community. But like C.T., he's young. Like C.T., Timothy is young. And Paul is telling Timothy and us that we have a certain responsibility in the way we interact with the people in the church because we are family. Notice that he says that we are supposed to not rebuke an older man. So there are older folks here. There are certainly older than me folks here. How do we deal with them? There are times when correction is needed. There are times when older people tend to go the wrong way or make a wrong decision or do something that brings dishonor to the name of God. And so correction is needed. What do we do when an older person needs to be corrected. The Apostle Paul says, don't rebuke them. The word rebuke has the idea of striking someone with words. 
In other words, don't run roughshod over them. Don't beat them up with your words. Instead, notice what he says. He says, encourage them as you would a father. What's interesting is the word encourage has the same meaning and same idea of the work of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. That's a very different way to deal with older folks, isn't it? We are to encourage older people who need to be corrected. Timothy is to be respectful and honorable when dealing with his congregation, especially with older men. In fact, he says older men, older people are to be honored and respected regardless of age and gender, and especially with older men, treat him as you would a father. I don't know how you treated your father, but I treated my father with love and respect, except for one time. There was just one time when I was almost a teenager when that got the better of me. And I learned the very hard way why it was a bad idea not to love and respect my father. But you know what I'm talking about. When we address our parents, when we address our father, we address with respect and with honor and with love. That's the way we're supposed to respond to our father. And Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us, that as a church, we respond and deal with and relate to our older men in the church as we would a father. To men who are your own age or younger, Paul says, speak with humility. Timothy, don't use your your position as pastor to lord it over these people just because they're younger than you. Just because you're an elder or a deacon or a life group leader or whatever title you may have or position we may hold, don't lord it over the people who are younger than you. Treat them with humility and respect. Treat them like you would a brother. Treat them like you would a brother. And he says, treat older women with gentleness. In other words, treat them like you would your mother. We love our mothers, don't we, church? Yes. If you didn't know the right answer, it was yes. <laughs> we, treat our, we treat our mothers well. We treat them with love and respect and with, with compassion and tenderness because they're our mothers. And we are to treat older women like mothers. That's the way we as a church relate to older women in the church. Just look around you. There's a lot of older ladies here. We treat them like moms. We treat them with love. We treat them with tenderness. We treat them with care. But not only that, notice what he says about younger women. We treat them like you treat your sister. We are to care and honor them, not to exploit them, not to take advantage of them. The church is not a meat market. The church is supposed to be a safe place for healthy relationships. We are a family. So when we deal with younger women in the church, we deal with them as if though we are dealing with our sister. How do you deal with your sister? You pull her hair, punch her, pinch her. Come on. When I have two daughters and a son. My son is the youngest. Anytime I raise my voice at my two daughters, my son will run from wherever he is and he will run in front of me and say, Dad, stop! Don't yell at them. He's been doing that since he was three years old. I dare say he would die for his sisters. Friends, that's how we are to treat younger women in this church. We treat them with love and respect. We defend and we honor them. 
and we care for them like we care for our sister. In other words, we are to treat one another with respect. Friends, the purpose of the church is to bring glory to God, and the glory of God is found in obedience to his word, and his word says we honor one another, we relate to one another in family, we respect with tenderness and compassion our brothers and sisters, our older folks and our younger folks. We love them, and we treat them with honor, and we defend them. That's what makes a gospel-centered community so special. Because we, if you look around us, we are from all over the place. In age, in skill, in education, finance, everything. We're different. And yet, we are called through the scriptures to love and respect each other. You will see this in your life groups. I hope you see this in your life groups. Our life groups are diverse. We have married and single, widowed and otherwise, all people from all over uh, the, the strata of, of society in our life groups, growing together, living together, learning together, trying to impact their communities for the glory of God. Friends, that's what makes a church a church. We are all different, brought together by the one thing that unites us, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? And as a result, we are called to treat each other with honor. The second way in which we are to relate to each other as family is that we are to care for one another with discernment. We are to care for one another with discernment. Reading from verse number three, the Apostle Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than six years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So now Paul goes from general instruction and into specific instruction about a group of people in the church, specifically widows. Just think about it this way. 10% of this letter is devoted to widows. Do you think widows are important? Widows were a huge deal for the heart of God. Can I just read some verses? God warned his people Israel not to mistreat widows. In Exodus chapter 22, God says to his people, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. That's a warning. Widows have a special place in the heart of God. God goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to say, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widows. God cares for widows. It's a beautiful thing when we see the heart of God for widows. You see that in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 6, where the church decided that they were going to set aside a group of people to specifically minister to the needs of widows. 
And what happened as a result of that? In chapter 6 and verse 6, you find as a result of taking care of widows, the gospel message went out and it impacted that region and people came to know Jesus Christ by faith and they were added to the church. Widows have a special place in the heart of God and and the apostle Paul spends 10% of the time of his letter dealing with the issue of widows. But he breaks this down into four scenarios. In verse number one, you see a group of older, faithful widows who still have a family. Meaning, this is a, a woman who has lost her husband, but still has children or extended family. And Paul is saying that the adult children have the responsibility of taking care of their mother. Now, some of you are like, I should not have come to church today. Man, what I was... But let me just say, we don't pass over tough stuff in the Bible, amen? We are Woodside Bible Church, and we preach the whole Bible. And here's what the Bible says. Older children are responsible for caring for, for for the widows, for our parents. I didn't make that up. I know that's uncomfortable, but that's what the Word of God says. Most of us, we relegate the care of our parents to the government. I mean, that's what Social Security is for after all, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't have that perspective. The Bible says that the feeding and care and love and support for our widows, for our aging parents, is for the children. That feels uncomfortable. All of a sudden, there's a lot of silence and no amens. But the care and feeding for our aged parents falls to children, not to the church, not to the government, but to the children. We care for our parents in their old age because of the care and the support that they have given to us. I remember reading a story a long time ago of a mom who at the breakfast table found a a note, a bill folded up under her plate, and that bill written by her 8-year-old son Bradley read, Mother owes Bradley for running errands, 25 cents. For being good, 10 cents. For taking music lessons, 15 cents. For extras, 5 cents. Total, 55 cents. Mother smiled, didn't say a word. That afternoon during lunch, Bradley sat down at his plate and he noticed that there was his bill sitting there folded along with 55 cents. And another note sitting next to it, neatly folded, and that note said, Bradley owes mother for nursing him through fever, Nothing. For being good, nothing. For shoes, clothes, and playthings, nothing. For his playroom, nothing. For meals, nothing. Total, nothing. How many of you are thankful for your mothers? Three, four, five. Wow. Can I? Maybe you didn't hear the question. Let's try this again. You're on video. How many of you are thankful for your mothers? Amen. Amen. For nursing us through our sickness, for watching over us when we couldn't sleep, for the nightmares that we had, for changing our diapers. Yes, every one of you had them. Thank God for mom. Amen. And God says, it's up to us who are children to take care of them because they took care of us. And every mom in this place said, Amen. Verse number five. By the way, verse number eight, I just want you to see how, what God says about that. Look, look, look at verse number eight. 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the what? The faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I didn't write those words. The apostle Paul did. If we are unwilling to take care of our aged parents who have taken care of us, the Bible says that then your confession of faith is not aligning with your walk of life. You understand how that works? That if we call ourselves Christians, then they will know that we are Christians by our... Oh, you've read that verse. That's a good verse. And that love starts in the home. And that love needs to be shown to our parents who may or may not be able to take care of themselves. And if we don't do that, the Apostle Paul warns us that we are straying from the faith. We are to take care of our our parents. In verse number five, we see another group of widows, older faithful widows who have no relatives to support them. These are widows who have lost their husbands and they have no children or extended family to take care of them. The care and the feeding of this group of people, the Apostle Paul says, falls to the church. The church, which is the family of God, is to come around those widows, to wrap our hands around them, and to bless them, especially because they are faithful in the things of the Lord. You notice all the qualifications that these widows are doing. They're praying, they're serving, they're hospitable, they're a blessing to the church and Timothy Paul tells Timothy, be a blessing to them. Take care of them. Support them because they need to be cared for. How precious these kind of widows are who are prayer warriors, who are such a blessing to this church, who on their knees bring this church and our needs before the Father. Thank God for widows like these who can pray for us, intercede for us, and bless us with their ministry. In verse number 6, we find a group of widows who are very different than in verse 5. In verse 6, it's a group of widows who are unfaithful. It's a group of widows who have decided to use their newfound freedom to live it up, to live the self-indulgent life. Why not? I'm free. Let's go. Have fun. Party on. Paul says, be careful. Those are widows who need correction because they're straying from the faith. Timothy, you need to go and encourage them to come back to the faith, to come back and live a life that is godly, to live a life that is Christ-like, to live a life of service, not self-indulgence, not self-centered, but other-centered, serving the church with their time and their talents and their treasure. And in verse number 11, Paul says that there is a group of widows who are young. It's a sad situation when a young lady loses her husband. And the Apostle Paul addresses that and says, for these women, it's okay to get married. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that it is better for people not to get married. And perhaps these ladies in this church listened to that and said, okay, my husband died. Maybe that's what the Lord wants of me. He wants me to remain single. I'll remain single. But the Apostle Paul in these verses says, that's good if you can keep that vow, if you can keep to serving the Lord with your life. But there are some women who can't. And so don't feel guilty if you feel led to remarry, to have a family, to raise children, to be a blessing in your household. Don't feel guilty when a marriage comes along that is acceptable before the Lord. Get married. It's okay. Don't feel guilty. Encourage those kind of women to build a family 
and to be a blessing. Now remember, <clears throat> Paul doesn't say here that you can't work. That's not what he's saying. He's living and writing to a society where women didn't normally work. But we, we work. We have to work in order to make a living and to make ends meet. But if the Lord calls you as a single widow who is young enough to get remarried, do so. And to be a blessing in your own household. What's the point of all this? Why spend all of this time talking about widows? Because widows matter. And widows have a special place in the heart of God. And so we give them honor because God cares for them. And it's up to us as a church to come around the widows who need help to bless them and to help them in their time of need. But normally, <clears throat> and in the first century, widows are only defined as women who have lost their spouses. But New Testament scholar Kent Hughes says that there's another group we ought to consider. He writes this in his commentary. Modern American culture has produced another category of women that was virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow, and those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. If you're a single mom, know that we love you, and we see you, and we know that it's hard in this world not only to struggle to make ends meet, but to raise children on your own. If you're here, you need help, and you need uh, support of any kind. Lauren Frith will be out in the back. The Connect Desk is out and to the left. Please stop by. Please let us wrap our arms around you. Please allow us to come and be the hands and feet of Jesus to you. We would love to help you in any way, shape, or form we can. And that's true not only for single moms, it's true for widows. If you're here and you need help, let us help you. Please come. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to wrap our arms around you. We'd love to care for you because that is the heart of God. I asked the staff here at Royal Oak how widows were integrated into the church and, and what they were doing, and here's how they responded. They said, we have a number of widows and older single women who do amazing things for our campus here at Royal Oak. They serve in our nurseries and children's classes. They make our lobby a warm place of welcome through serving coffee or at the Connect Desk. They reach out to mentor, mentor younger women and the next generation, and they carry our church body to the Father in faithful prayer. Thank God for these wonderful women who are such a blessing to our campus. Aren't you glad for women like that who are a blessing to us? Amen. The church treats each other like family. We treat each other with honor. We treat, treat each other with discernment. But thirdly, the Apostle Paul says that we fulfill our responsibility with faithfulness. I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14. Paul continues to write, So I would have younger wi widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the advers ad adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Essentially summarizing everything he's already said. And he says, in summary, all widows, you are to live faithful, godly lives, using your talents and your treasures for the glory of God and for the blessing of the church. My mom is a widow. She became a widow at the age of 48 and chose not to get remarried. And she spends her time praying. 
I remember after my father passed away, she would wake up at 3 in the morning and pray. And she didn't like pray small, quiet, mouse-like prayers. She was loud. And she'd cry. And she'd wail. And she'd... And, and, after a while, you know, we'd let her cry for a little bit. After a while, we was like, Mom, stop. We got to go to school. I got to go to work. Can you quiet it down? And felt bad doing that. But you got to have logistics. You got to have some reasonable amount of sleep. And so she stopped 3 o'clock in the morning prayers, and she started 6 o'clock in the morning prayers. That's okay. At least it's closer enough to time to wake up. But she spends her time praying. <clears throat> every morning and every evening, you will find her on her knees. Every Friday morning, she fasts and she prays. And I will tell you that I am the man I am today because of her prayers. Widows have, you praise the Lord for my mother, absolutely. But widows, it's amazing what God can do through you. Through the time and the availability of your skills and what you can do for this church, God has yet to unleash the full potential of all the widows that we have. Continue to be a blessing. Continue to pray. Continue to let the word of God fulfill you and saturate you so that you can be a blessing to this congregation. He says, again, in summary to younger widows, you have dignity. Be encouraged to marry. Remember last week, we talked about some of these false teachers that were running around talking about certain foods to avoid and even not marrying. You remember last week we talked about that? Perhaps some of these younger widows were caught up in that lie, caught up in that false teaching, and so they were abstaining from marriage because they were being taught that it's bad. Paul says, no, get married. It's a blessing to be married and to build up a house. So don't get caught up in a lie. Don't stray after the wicked one. Don't get caught up in endless genealogies and myths. Get married. Have a household. Work. Be a blessing. Don't be an idle chatter, chatterer. And then he says to Christian families with widows, we are to shoulder the responsibility given to us. We are called to be a blessing to our older parents. And why is this all important? Why spend so much time articulating who to care for? Paul says at the end of verse 16, so that the church may care for those who are truly widows. We don't have infinite resources. We have an infinite God, but we don't have infinite resources. And Paul's concern for the church is that we spend our time and our energy on those who rightfully are vulnerable and destitute and need the help and the care so that we can put our resources to the best use possible. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to care for those who are in need, to care for those who are hurting, to care for those who are vulnerable so that we can come and be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. And by the way, when we do that, the world is watching. And as the world watches the church interact with one another with honor, with respect, with love and compassion, when we defend and honor one another, it impacts the world because the world sees the love and compassion here and wants a part of it. May our lives live, a, live consistent lives with the scriptures so that the world will know that Jesus is Lord of our lives. Amen? <clears throat> Joanne Shetler was the missionary to the Balangao tribe in the Philippines for over 20 years. And in her 20 years, she was able to see the entire tribe come to know Jesus Christ by faith.
And as a result of the entire tribe coming to know Christ, their entire culture was turned upside down. Everything about their culture transformed. And in the course of time, they started reading through the scriptures and studying the scriptures, and they came across 1 Timothy. And when they got to chapter 5, here's how Joanne Shetler writes in her diary. She says, When we got to the end of the chapter, where it talks about widows in need and the church's responsibility to take over for widows who have no other source of livelihood. Something happened. About the same time, Forsan, one of those old women who had lost her husband, who was a widow indeed, all of her children had long been dead. She had no relatives in Balangao. In fact, she was not even native to Balangao. And in Balangao culture, there is no mercy if there is no blood connection. She would have been left alone in her house without food until she died. One of the men who had helped me in translating the Bible went over, took Forsan by the hand with her one little pot, brought her over and said, you will be like my mother and you will live with us in our home. And that old woman is there today even though she is sick and weak. That's what the word of God can do. It can transform us. Imagine how these words can transform our culture, our church, our society, as we become the hands and feet first to the household of God. And as a result of the way we treat one another, think of the impact it makes on the world that's watching. Friends, there's a story of, of people thousands of miles away who live in mud huts who just have a pot, and yet the word of God made a difference in their life. The question I have for you is, will the word of God make a difference in our life? Will this campus live in obedience to God's word so that we can be a blessing, honoring one another, defending one another, blessing one another, especially, as the Apostle Paul says, the widows who have no one else to help them. If you're here today, and all of this talk about family is foreign to you, because you haven't accepted Jesus Christ by faith, we're so glad you're here. May I remind you that every one of us sitting here started off the same way. We were enemies of God. We were aliens from, from God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were lost. We were isolated. We were destitute until God came seeking us. We didn't find him. He found us. Amen? And he went to the cross not because he did anything wrong, but because of your guilt and mine. He died on a cruel cross to pay for your penalty and my penalty. He died the death we should have died. His blood was shed to forgive us of our sins. His death made a way for us to be made right with God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, all it takes is to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my mistakes. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life and would you save me? And the God who died on the cross of Calvary rose again three days later. If you confess him as Lord and Savior, you will be saved and God will come into your life. He will forgive you. He will transform you. He will add you into his family and you will become part of our family. And we would love nothing better than to see you be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light to be part of a new family that will live forever in the light of his presence. If you're here today, I'd love to introduce him to you. I know lunch is waiting, your stomach is growling and all that's true, but don't lose the moment of opportunity for you to live for eternity with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that you and I will find a way to be obedient to his word so that 
our church might be a blessing, a blessing that impacts this world and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Amen?